Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. All right, so we're going to start with our questions today. So just a reminder to everyone to please keep your questions to the point, to ask a question and, uh, and address it in a way that our presenter can answer it and uh, be aware that other people may want to be asking questions as well. So, so the microphone is open. It's just over here to the side. If anyone is interested in asking a question, uh, I, I encourage you to come up to the microphone now and, and, uh, and address it to our presenter. And since there is some time, I'm actually going to ask the first question, if that's okay. Um, so you spoke a little bit about um, how there's, there's pretty strict legislation that uh, is stigmatizing those living with HIV because they have to disclose before having a sexual partner. And there's an opportunity for that sexual partner to come back and say that they were, were exposed to this, this um, virus. Now... How far do you think the legislation needs to go to protect people who are genuinely interested in not disclosing and putting their sexual partners at risk? Can I just make sure I understand the question? So you're asking if someone is intentionally trying to expose someone else to HIV, what should the penalty be? Yeah, how far should the legislation go in I that case? I think the case? penalty should... Um, deal with that accordingly. I think that is wrong, absolutely wrong, to intentionally try and infect someone with HIV. So I think that legislation should punish that. That should be a conviction. And that's actually one of the recommendations from the Global Commission is that where there is intentional malicious um, transmission, there should be conviction. Thank you. All right, so we'll move on. Hi, I'm Trevor Page. Um, years ago, I used to be the CEO of a contraceptive social marketing com company. And in the so-called world, uh, world AIDS capital of Bombay, or Mumbai as it's now called, back at the, in the early 2000s, there was not even a helpline. There was no number that people could call to say, I think I might have a problem, uh, can you tell me, um, or at least help me a little, and is there somewhere I can get tested? Now, you highlighted the need to know, the need for testing in your presentation. Right. And I am appalled that there is uh, no way you can get tested other than at your family doctor here in Lethbridge. I me shudder too. to Thank think, you. I shudder... <laughs> to think what the situation is on the reserve as to what facilities are there. So my question, the two, why is there not a place that you can get yourself tested in Lethbridge? What are you doing about it? And what is the situation on the reserve? Okay, so thank you. That's a very good question. I am also appalled that there isn't. There is a sexual health center um, downtown in the professional building, and that works with uh, youth under 25, and they will do testing. Uh, there's a big push. I'm part of a larger provincial organization called the Alberta Community Council on HIV, and there is a huge push, uh, pressure being put on the provincial government to introduce STI clinics across the province because there is a need. 
Uh, there are clinics in Calgary, so people in Lethbridge, if they don't want to go to their local doctor, because as I'm sure you all know, the six degrees of separation in Lethbridge really come down to one or two. Um, you know, your sister-in-law's the nurse, et cetera, and so on. So we do uh, refer people up to Calgary, but that tends to take a day of their travel, which is also a barrier. People don't want to do that. Another problem with testing is it can take two weeks to get the results back. The Southern Alberta Clinic in Calgary, which does testing, uh, continually will do test results for Jane or John Doe, and then Jane or John Doe don't come back, and the phone number Jane or John Doe left is not le- it doesn't reach the person who's tested. So there's a big problem with it as well. So it has been addressed. It's gone. You know, it's continually being pressured onto the provincial government that we do need STI clinics across the province. What's going to happen with that? I can't say. Uh, as for the reserves, there are some doctors on reserves. The reserves are quite unique in that they're funded under First Nations Inuit Health. So actually, the funding my agency gets does not take us onto reserve. Uh, we are getting funding to work with the Aboriginal population specific, which is very exciting for us. We already work with the Aboriginal population. Uh, this will just give us an additional body to help with that work. Uh, so anyway, there are a couple of doctors on reserve, and they can do testing on reserve. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much for your presentation. My name is Frances Schultz. And, and I think that for many of the people in the room, there are some aspects of discrimination that if you haven't experienced them, you don't believe they're there. At our table, two of us have experienced the same discrimination. Back in the days when the Red Cross was collecting blood and they would dump 10 people's blood together and test it. It happened to both of us that we got letters. We had to go to see our doctor because our blood was rejected. Uh, My doctor sent me for tests, and for the first time in my life, I was identified by a number that only my doctor knew. Nobody in in the lab, they didn't know my name or anything, and all of the correspondence had to be under that number, not my name. Now, in the end, my blood was tested and sent to the provincial lab, came back, it was negative, but ever since then, including Canadian Blood Services, my, I can no longer donate because we are branded forever. So. For those of us that aren't that are HIV negative, we're branded. And think of how I think about how awful it must be for someone who is HIV positive to be branded for life. We just don't donate blood because they've decided that they can reject nine out of the ten people for blood donors while they beg for blood. And do you see any possibility of changes? in this kind of discrimination? Optimistically, yes. Realistically, no. (laughs) I think that's a great example. Um, It's always a tremendous... um, We actually received a phone call one day at our agency asking for pictures of AIDS. And it stopped me because I went, what do you mean by AIDS? Hearing AIDS? Walking? Like, what do you mean by AIDS? I literally took me a moment to clue in she meant AIDS, H-A-I-D-S, right? Because there was, people think there's a photo of what AIDS looks like. 
HIV doesn't discriminate. It doesn't choose people. It chooses behavior. You're negative. You don't look like someone who would have HIV. I don't look like someone who have HIV. In the public's perception, that's not true. How do you know I don't have HIV? How do I know in this room who does or doesn't have HIV? We don't. Um, but people think they can label it, and you've been labeled. Um, I'd like to say that the blood bank is using extreme caution, but there is discrimination, gay men and blood donation. They're still pushing on that one um, to allow it. So, no, realistically, I think until the fear in our communities subsides and the realization that HIV is not as frightening as it was in the 1980s when we didn't know what it was is no longer the same. We know what it is. We know how to prevent it. It's not contagious. Um, I was saying over lunch that I, a doctor at, at the conference talked about how he's been working in the AIDS uh, movement since it began, and he still doesn't have AIDS, right? Until society accepts that, I don't see the discrimination going away, unfortunately. But it's good. This is what presentations like this are all about, educating people, letting people know that they're safe, letting people know there's nothing to be afraid of, that there's no need for stigma or discrimination. Uh, <clears throat> Terry Shillington, thank you for your rapid-fire presentation. Um, I, I wouldn't know where to start asking questions, but uh, here's a couple if I can slip them in. <clears throat> I'm not the only one at my table. Uh, I, I probably lived with a protected existence, but uh, I wasn't the only one mystified by the concept of a female condom. So I, I have visions of wrapping a woman in a sheet uh, from head to toe. Uh, secondly, uh, what is the cost of uh, art, and uh, how does that factor into um, third-world countries like Africa? Okay. So um, those are great questions, and I actually, you'll have to forgive me, meant to bring a female condom because you're not alone. Anyone who doesn't know what a female condom is, uh, that's uh, very common. So a female condom um, has a ring, and... Um, like a condom, the casing, and it just fits over the vagina so that the, the penis would penetrate into that, protecting the female. Um, it allows for a little more endurance, um, and it really empowers the female because a lot of men don't like to wear condoms for whatever their reasons. Uh, we push it particularly with sex workers to give them some control over um, because men will pay more to have unprotected sex. So if they can use a female condom, it's very advantageous to them. Does that answer the female condom question? Um, I'm sorry, now I've forgotten your other question. Oh, the cost. So in Alberta, it's approximately $2,000 a month for one HIV-positive pers person. It can be as high as... It can be higher. Quite often with HIV, there are other um, factors, mental illness being one of them. Addiction could be one. Other illnesses that come along as side effects. So for art, it's approximately $2,000. I didn't get into this, but it was a really hot, hot uh, topic at the uh, AIDS conference was uh, getting access to care in third world countries because that's a huge problem. Uh, there's the Global Fund looking at that. The United States is committing uh, money to continue helping fund that. Uh, third world countries are now taking some responsibility for themselves and setting aside money, even though it's limited, to support themselves in that movement. Um, but one of the biggest debates, one of the and it's it's appalling really is the pharmaceutical companies and the, the extreme cost that they're charging. So there are organizations, um, Dignitas by James Orbinski is one of them, that's trying to get 
um, generic medication into third world countries because it's cheaper and you can reach more people. So that's one of the ways they're trying to address that. Thank you. My name is Frank Toth. I've missed three or four meetings. I'm glad I came to this one because oh, thank you. this is a very powerful question. Uh, I'm concerned basically of the terrible conflict with you and your organizations against a tremendous force being applied. The, the, the U.S. election, several states are running to, to illegalize drugs. And we, we had a half-an-hour program on CBC this morning uh, with several doctors and politicians pushing for the legalization. Now, if you have a friend or a neighbor or somebody you know is on drugs, heavy drugs, there's no control. So where, where do your organization fit into this? With, with all, Alberta, for instance, 51% of the latest Polish school kids admit to having taken drugs or on it, okay? Yeah. So where is the, who's going to win this conflict for the better of all? I think that evidence is showing that the drug war is winning. Um, as far as my agency, we deal every day with people with a history of uh, drug use. Um, we practice what's called a harm reduction approach, where we accept that people are going to use drugs. Um, addiction is a very dangerous thing. It's, it's an illness. It's being increasingly recognized as an illness, uh, which will hopefully lessen some of the stigma. Um, we accept that it's not easy for people to stop their habit. If it was easy for someone to stop their habit, we wouldn't have addiction at the levels we have addiction. So what we try and do at my agency is reach people where they're at. So if you use injection drugs, we ask that you come to our office and get clean needles because that's going to limit the new infections. Don't share your needles. We'll give them to you for free. We'll give you all the works that you need to go with them. We'll give you a container so that you can safely dispose of them. You can bring that container back to us. We take that container to Alberta Health Services. The needles are disposed of properly so that there are less risk of infection. We have drop boxes throughout the city so that people aren't leaving their needles in parks, so that your children aren't running around uh, tripping over a needle and sticking their toe. Um, so that's what we do is we practice harm reduction. And condoms are similar. You know, People are going to have sex. People have been having sex forever. That's why we're all here. Um, we just want you to wear a condom. We don't tell people not to do drugs. We tell them to do safe drugs. We don't tell people not to have sex. We tell them to have safe sex. Tattoos and piercings, we don't say not to get a tattoo. We say do your homework, make sure your parlor's following proper standards. Does that answer? Thank you. Thank you for your talk. I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Uh, I just want to say that you were talking about overseas countries, third world countries, and so on. <clears throat> the Harambee Grandmas is going to be having their big Scrabble tournament in mid-October, so I hope some people here will play Scrabble. I did last year and, and got donations of a few hundred. Anyway, uh, you talked about uh, stigma and decriminalization as being the greatest um, problems, the big barrier, and of course education is the best way to deal with that. So I'd like to know, what are you doing in the schools? Because as far as I know, sex education is the lowest thing on the totem pole in the schools, yeah. and it's not much even when it's taught. So you asked how, how have other, other um, stigmas been dealt with. It was education and starting in the schools. So we actually do not go into the schools, and don't freak out over that. I'll explain that in a moment. Uh, we go where our infection rates are the highest. Um, 
and it's okay that we're not going into the schools because the sexual health center is going into the schools. So they do go in and they do talk about safer sex. They do talk about HIV. They do talk about stigma and discrimination. Uh, and you're right, education is the key. When people understand the virus and understand the illness, they can respond a lot different than being afraid of it. Um, I completely missed the other part. Oh, I know I was going to say that the grandmothers are an amazing force. They've actually helped us out with our Spring for Life uh, campaign in the past. Amazing force. Congratulations for being one of them. Hi, my name's Pat Greenlee. You mentioned that one of the problems is non-compliance with taking the drugs and that people had to be on them for life. It seems to me that there must be some horrific side effects to these drugs or people would want to take them. So can you tell us a bit about side effects and why people don't want to take the drugs? So I, I would, first of all, sorry if I gave you the wrong idea, I would say it's not about people not wanting to take the drugs so much as not necessarily understanding what the treatment regime is. So for example, I think the best, um, if someone's living with a mental health illness, they don't necessarily follow their treatment regime. Um, we had clients who would go off their medication temporarily if they wanted to go to the United States because of the travel restriction. They couldn't take their medication in because they'd be identified as HIV positive. So they would go to the States but leave their meds here for a few days. Um, so there are issues like that. How many people in this room, though, will get a prescription that says must take until the end and they cut out a bit early because they feel good? So those are some of the reasons for it. Um, or affordability is a big reason. If you can't afford your medication, you're not going to take it. If your choice is feeding your children or taking your medication, you're going to feed your children. Uh, side effects can be varied. ART is a much easier than earlier medications. Some of the side effects we deal with, there's some, some weight gain um, as a side effect. Um, neuropathy, where you lose feeling, is a side effect. There's nausea, there's diarrhea. Many of the usual medication side effects can happen with it. I'm not a medical practitioner. I've never been on HIV medication. I actually don't um, necessarily deal one-on-one -on -one with our, our positive clients. We have a, a counselor for that. She would have a lot more of that information. Good afternoon. My name's Ian McLaughlin. I'm on next week, and uh, you're giving me a very hard act to follow. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for your talk. I've got two very factual kinds of, uh, of questions. Uh, you, you mentioned prevention of the passage of AIDS from mother to child during the birth process, and I don't understand why AIDS wouldn't be passed through the umbilical route. Uh, it actually is. That's, sorry to interrupt. That's considered vertical transmission. It is. So, there, so there's vertical transmission, there's childbirth, and there's nursing. So three mother-to-child routes. So given that, that it can be passed through the umbilical route, then you're done. You can't, you, that can't possibly be avoided, can it? Yes, treatment as prevention is, is, is avoiding that. So putting what we're finding increasingly is if we can get pregnant women who are HIV positive on treatment, we are lowering significantly the risk of the child being born positive. We've had, in my time at the agency, three children born to clients. All of them are negative. So significant. And that's where Dr. Montagna is arguing we have success. This works. We're preventing transmission. My, my second one was about the 30 million uh, mortalities to date. Uh, and 
That surprised me. I thought it would be a higher number than that, given the very high incidence levels in in uh, Africa, for example. Yeah. And uh, so I, we, we just thought that perhaps uh, you could elaborate on on that 30 million mortality figure. And thank you. I'd say that part of that. So Africa is still um, sub-Saharan. Sub-Saharan Africa is still leading the numbers in the AIDS pandemic. But with treatment as prevention, we're seeing a little more shift in that in countries where there is full access to treatment, so North America, we have fewer deaths. So that shifts the balance a bit. People are still dying in third world countries at alarming rates. Um, but there are also organizations such as the, um, the UN AIDS um, my mind is going blank. There are many global organizations that are fighting to get people on treatment in third world countries, and that's slowing down the rates of death. Does that answer that? So people are still dying at alarming rates. There are entire villages that have been wiped out. Um, there are uh, the AIDS orphan tower, uh, 600 children in one village who don't have parents because they've all died from AIDS-related illness. So it, yeah, the numbers are slowing down because of treatment where treatment is available. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Uh, my question is a little bit more political. <clears throat> Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, where does HIV Latvis get their funding from, and uh, what's, can you explain how, how you manage to stay afloat when oh. so many other agencies are getting, like Women's Space has been cut off from funding? Uh, can you... Elaborate on that? Sure. Sex and drugs. Um, so we're funded through the Alberta Community HIV Fund. We're part of a, large, a larger provincial organization, even though we're independent and autonomous. We're part of the Alberta Community Council on HIV. So we have partners in Calgary, Edmonton, Grand Prairie, etc. Uh, we meet a couple times a year in Edmonton. We're meeting in October. <coughs> Excuse me. Do some skills building, uh, sharing. I always consider myself a thief because I'm always stealing the great ideas that people who have been in this um, work a lot longer than me have implemented at their agencies. Uh, so that's who we're funded from. The, the money comes from the government, uh, Public Health Agency of Canada. Uh, we also do fundraising. Um, every year we do a Spring for Life campaign um, where we raise funds. We host casinos. There's no clinic in Lethbridge for people living with HIV, so they actually have to go to Calgary for their HIV-specific uh, care, and we will fund the cost for that to ensure there are no barriers to treatment. Uh, and I think the reason that we're able to stay afloat is really it comes down to the pandemic is not going away. Um, we are an essential service, in my opinion, to make sure people understand, to make sure people are getting what they need to protect themselves. Um, as I said earlier, there's a syphilis outbreak in Alberta right now. So Alberta Health and Wellness just gave us some additional money so that we can try and deal with that and reach people. Because where syphilis goes, HIV is going too. Other sexually transmitted infections are going too. So sex and drugs, I'd say that's why we're still in business. My name is Mark Gettle. Uh, I imagine there's a lot of people out there that are HIV positive that never develop AIDS. And I'm wondering if I was diagnosed as being HIV positive, when does treatment begin? Because you, you mentioned that yep. treatment is so important, it reduces titer, reduces transmission. Yep. But if I'm one of those people who hasn't had any AIDS symptoms yet, you know, uh, is, does treatment begin right away? 
Not necessarily. So that's something that the individual doctor considers with the individual client. So there are many factors that would come into play on that. Uh, your viral load would come into play. Your overall health would come into play. Uh, we've had a few clients decline testing because they just can't wrap their head around it quite yet because you are on t uh, treatment, sorry, for the rest of your life. So their health is well. They're doing well. They're living a healthy life. So they just delay it a little bit because they need to deal with it psychologically and, you know, understand what they have and what that means for them. Um, so it's up to the individual doctor and the client or the patient to decide when they need to start treatment. Um, oh, sorry, Bell. just, just once. Um, thanks very much for your address. I think that's been really very useful. Excellent. If um, I remember correctly, the federal government attempted to stop the needle program out in Vancouver. Uh, so when you referred to it here, that was kind of interesting. Is the federal government funding any of your work? either in Canada or Alberta or abroad? Uh, it's funding through the Public Health Agency of Canada, which is federal. Um, the needle exchange program you're talking to in about in Vancouver is actually called INSIGHT, and it's actually not a needle exchange program as we have. It's a safe injection site where people can come in and safely inject their drugs under supervision. There's an amazing report that was put out showing the number of deaths it's prevented, uh, the number of transmissions it's preventing. It was extremely controversial at the conference because the Minister of Health spoke at a session on Canada, and many people stood up and turned their backs on her because she, they claimed that you've turned your back on us. I told you it was not without controversy. So they all turned their backs on her, and Insight actually spoke. They had delegates speak, saying, why, why are you trying to cut us off when the evidence is showing that this works? So that's a great question. We only... We only have a couple minutes left, so I'm just going to um, to ask Charlene, it, does your organization, do you guys uh, accept volunteers? Absolutely. We love volunteers. <laughs> and how can people contact your organization or yourself for more information? Uh, you can come and speak to me directly afterwards. We are online at lethbridgehiv.com. Our information is there. We have a Facebook page. We don't Twitter. I'm not a tweeter. Uh, we do have a Facebook page. Uh, we're located at 1206 6th Avenue South. Just down from London Road Market, just look for the house with the big wheelchair ramp. A lot of people drive right past us because we don't have a big flashing sign, and that's because of stigma and discrimination. Anyone who walks into our door needs to feel safe. They don't need to hear that, gee, I saw you going into that HIV building. Are you positive? So <laughs> thank you. I do have some cards if someone wanted to get my contact information too. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Charlene, for your presentation. Thank you. I think it was extremely inf informative. So just before we, uh, we all leave, there's a couple of SACPA sessions coming up. Um, and Lisa has the basket of condoms, which I encourage everyone to take. I'm sure there's children and grandchildren out there who need a little HIV bit of sexual is education. climbing in the seniors' community. <laughs> so uh, feel free to take some on your way out. And they're, they're, they're not just the, uh, the, the cheap ones. These are, these are good brands. From, from what Our I condoms hear. are sexy and hot. This one is Marilyn Monroe, and it says one likes it hot. We're fun. <laughs> They're hip. <laughs> <laughs>